Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, October 29th, 2020. It is a great pleasure to be able to be here and to study together with all of you tonight. Thank you for making time for this. So there's a fundamental classic question about prayer. We've asked it before, we've given different answers, but it needs to be discussed over and over. And that is, how does prayer work? For example, if there's something that we pray to God for. Let's say we're not doing so well financially and we pray to God for increased um, uh, material possessions uh, to make our life more comfortable, just as an example. And we pray to God. Why in the world should that help? If God decides that we should have more, why doesn't God just provide it to us? And if God decides that we should not have more, then why would he change the outcome just because we prayed for it? In what way does prayer help for the things that we ask for? So there are a number of classic answers to this question, and I want to share with you a very important classic answer given by Rabbi Yosef Albo, one of our greatest philosophers. And he said that through prayer, I become a different person. The decree of having less than I need was against another person. That person was further from God. But I have brought myself closer to God through prayer. I have moved myself. I have transformed myself through my prayer, through my closer contact with God, and now I am someone else. I am a different person, entitled, perhaps, to a different outcome. Now, of course, sometimes the answer is still no. And that answer can be no even if our prayer is perfect. But how can you tell if you have prayed effectively? How can you tell if you have really prayed? If you feel that you are different when you finish. Our parish of Lech Lecha begins the journey of Sarah and Avraham. It begins a journey where God commands them to go, to leave their home. And it begins a journey of movement, of development. At the beginning of the Parsha, <clears throat> Avraham and Sarah are not able to conceive a child. Near the end of the Parsha, 
God changes their names from Avram to Avraham, from Sarai to Sarah. They have a new name. They're a new person. Avram and Sarai could not conceive a child. But Avraham and Sarah, they can. And they do conceive a child because they are different people. But changing the name in and of itself does not do anything. The change in name is only significant if it reflects a change within the person, a development in the character of the person. Our sages explain Avram, his name was changed to Avraham, which indicates that Avram was Av Hamon Goyim. He was the father of many nations. He was concerned not only with his own family, his concerns were universal. He worried about the world. He wanted to take care of the world, to direct the world. That was a shift. Not only it's indicated by the change in his name, but it's a shift in his personality, in his character, what he saw as his mission in life. He was a changed person. Sarai means my princess. Sarah means the princess of the world. Similarly, a transition from a focus that is narrow in which I am the center to a focus which is universal, where I am on the periphery and the main interest of my life is making sure that others are okay. That is the deepest meaning of the opening phrase of our Parsha, Lech Lecha. Now those words, Lech Lecha, are very, very strange if we try to understand them carefully. Lech means go. Lech Lecha, literally Lecha, literally means go for yourself or more literally, go to yourself. It's a very strange terminology. And by the way, as many commentators have pointed out, and I've shared with you before, if the whole purpose of the first verse is for God to tell Sarah and Abraham to start out on this journey, why is there no destination that is mentioned? Go to the place that I will show you. If you tell someone to go, doesn't it make sense to say, Here's where I want you to go. But in fact, God does not mention a destination. Rather, the meaning of this phrase is go to become the new, better person that you are meant to be. Go, lech, go, lecha, to become you, to become the new you to deserve a different decree, to deserve a different answer from God.
the purpose of the journey was not only to get to a new geographical location, but much more immediately, it was to get to a new moral location, a new spiritual location, a new location in terms of mission, in terms of the focus of life. That is what prayer is supposed to do. And that is the way that prayer can work. Let me share with you an example from our davening when we're in shul together. And if we're not in shul, hopefully we'll get back to shul soon. <clears throat> On the days when we read from the Torah, we take the Torah out. And then the chazan who is holding the Torah says a line out loud. It's a line from Tehillim. And the line is, Gadlu Lashem Iti Yaktov. Gadlu Lashem Iti, magnify God with me. The Chazan is saying to the congregation, magnify God with me. Yaktov, and let us exalt his name together. Okay. Beautiful line, beautiful passage in Tehillim. We say it, we can take the Torah out. That's what we say. Let me share with you the insight of Rabbi Akiva Eger. <coughs> Rabbi Akiva Eger understands that prayer is supposed to be a journey. In order for prayer to be effective, I have to start out in one place, but I have to end up in another place, in a more developed place, closer to God and closer to my fellow. That's got to be the movement that takes place through the process of prayer. Listen to how Rabbi Kiva Eger explains this. We take the Torah out of the Aron. We're about to read from the Torah and we say, the, the Chazan says to the congregation, Magnify God with me. Now, if I say to you, Magnify God with me. So, I'm asking you to join me. Meaning, I'm in the center. I'm holding the Torah. I'm carrying the Torah. You, you can join me. God lo Lashem Iti. You join me because I'm at the center. The second half of the line switches its focus. Unaromama Shemo Yachtov. And let us exalt God's name together. In the second half of the line, I'm not at the center. In the second half of the line, I have put aside my own self-centeredness. I, and, and by the second half of the line, we are coming together as one. It's not me inviting you. It is us all together. So that through the dynamic of this one line, it starts where I am concerned about myself and my concern about you is peripheral. 
And in the process of this one line, I transform myself so that it is no longer about me. It is about us together. Prayer is the process where I end up spiritually, morally different than where I began. Listen to how dramatically this is expressed by Yirmiyoh Anabi, the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah is describing the redemption and ingathering of the exile and the reestablishment of a relationship with God based on peace and closeness and hope. And listen to the words that the prophet says, Ukurasimosi, and you will call out to me, Vahalachtem, and you will come to me, Vihispalaltem Eli, and you will pray to me, Vishamati Alechem, and I will listen to your prayers. Let's understand those words. Ukurasimosi, you will call out to me, Vahalachtem, and you will come to me, you will travel towards me, you will move spiritually and morally so that you are in a different place. And that is the process. You will pray to me because that's what happens when we pray to God in a sincere manner. We move towards God. We are no longer in the same location vis-a-vis God that we were when we started. Now we're in a different place. Now we're in a closer place. That's why vishamate alechem. That's why I will listen to your prayer. And the Pasuk continues, Ubikashtimosi umatsasem. And when you seek me out, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart. Prayer is movement. Prayer is becoming a different, better person. That's the lesson from the line that we say in our davening, Gadlu Lashem Iti, movement, Unaroma Moshnoi Yachtov. By the end of the line, I have submerged my own ego, and it's no longer about me, it's about us. I have transformed myself. And that is how, according to Rabbi Albo, it is possible through prayer, to receive a different response from God. Because I become a different person, perhaps deserving of a different answer. <clears throat> if you're in the stone Chumash, please turn to page 56. I want to discuss a passage Near the beginning of the parsha, it's chapter 12, Yudbeis, starting with Pasuk Yud, verse 10. In the stone Chumash, it's 56 in the middle of the page. So, very close to the beginning of the parsha, 
Avram and Sarah and Lot had only recently traveled to Israel, where they settled. At that time, it was known as Canaan, the land of Canaan. And there was a famine in the land. Avram and Sarah and Lot traveled down to Mitzrayim, to Egypt, because the famine was very serious in Israel, and the only way they could sustain themselves was to move down to Egypt where there was food. And it was as they were traveling towards Mitzrayim. Avram says to his wife Sarai, Hinei I know, that you are a very beautiful woman. And it will be when we arrive in Mitzrayim, the, the Mitzrim will see you, they will say, they will say, she is the wife of this man, meaning referring to himself. And they will kill me. And they'll keep you alive. So Avram says to Sarah, Please say when we get there, tell them that you are my sister. In order for it to be good for me, based on what you say to them. A very, very strange passage. How could Avraham lie? How could Avraham ask Sarah to lie and to potentially put herself in danger? Because if she's not married, then these Mitzrim might just take her for themselves. That was the kind of world that it was at that time. And actually, as the story unfolds, that is exactly what happens. And Sarah is put in danger. She's taken to Paro's palace. So how could Avram ask Sarah to lie, especially to lie in a way that puts Sarah herself in danger? Plus, is Avram actually suggesting that Sarah should lie in order that he should benefit? Say that you are my sister. It in order for it to be good for me. What, what does that mean? Avram is going to benefit. He's going to profit from the fact that Sarah lied about who she was. Does this sound like the kind of person that is the right choice for God to choose to start all of Jewish history? So this Shabbos, we begin again the study of the Avos, the patriarchs, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. The Imahos, our matriarchs, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. And then the other heroes of the Torah, 
that we will learn about throughout the year. These heroes of the Torah about whom we say, Ma say avos simen labanim. The actions of our matriarchs and patriarchs are signposts. They are guideposts. They are role models for us, their children. The narratives that we read about are not just history. They're not just what happened. But they are lessons in values. And those are lessons in values we are supposed to emulate. And those lessons and values complement the Torah's lessons in deeds, the mitzvos. So there is a fundamental debate in how to learn these lessons. These lessons that are taught to us through narratives, these lessons and values, how are we to learn these lessons? And this debate that I'm going to share with you has existed throughout our entire history and it continues today. And it underlies how we study any part of the Torah. Now, I do not have a complete solution to the problem that I'm going to outline for you in just a moment. But this problem is the basis of how we learn from the narratives of these Torah portions. And we have to somehow grapple with both sides of the debate that I will share with you starting today and continuing throughout the rest of our study of Torah. Let's come back to the original question. How could Avram lie, put Sarah in danger, and appear to be benefiting by Sarah's lie? A number of our classic scholars, including Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch, give the following answer. And they say that what Avraham did was absolutely correct. Because it goes like this. As Avraham and Sarah neared Mitzrayim, they realized that because of Sarah's beauty and because of the immorality of the people who were living there, Avraham was in a situation of sakonas nefashos. His life was in danger. Sarah was going to be taken. That was the assumption. That was a given. A beautiful woman comes from far away and the, 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 the immorality in that place at that time was she's going to be taken. Avram's life is in danger because in Avraham's judgment there are only two choices. Either Sarah is taken and Avraham is killed because he is her husband. So to, in quotation marks, free her from her previous marriage, 
Avram will be killed. In which case, there is no one left to save Sarah. That's choice number one. Or, choice number two is, Sarah is taken, and Avram remains alive by claiming to be her brother, and he has a chance to save her. Those are the only two choices. So when Avram says, Imrina achosiat, please say that you are my sister, Laman yitav li bavurech, doesn't mean because I'm going to get lots of wealth and presents because you lied about our relationship. It means that they will treat me better than if they know that I am your husband. If they know that I'm your husband, I'm dead. That's it. It's over. If they think that I am your brother, they will treat me better, meaning they'll at least keep me alive. And then, the next words of the Pasuk, V'chaisa nafshi biglolech, my life will be saved because of what you say, and in return, I will be able to save your life. They will keep me alive because of what you say, and I will be able to save you. And in fact, as the narrative unfolds, that is precisely what happens. Therefore, says Rav Hirsch and a number of other scholars, the lie was called for and it was appropriate to the situation that they faced. That's one answer. That's one approach to answering this question. A group of scholars takes a different approach. The Ramban, Nachmanides, the Radak, another classic commentator to the Torah, and others disagree with that answer. The Ramban writes, Nachmanides writes, Vida, and you should know, Ki Avraham Avinu Chata Chet Gadol Bishkaga. Avram committed a serious sin in, in asking Sarah to lie. Shehevi ishto hatzadekes b'michshol avon mipne pachto pen yehargeu. He brought his wife to a situation where she was in danger because of his fear of being killed. Avram was wrong. He should not have said that. Now, underlying these two diametrically opposite ways of interpreting this particular passage is a more global question. Are we to assume that the Avos and the Imahos, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, the heroes in the Torah, are we to assume that they are perfect? Their actions are always correct and beyond reproach? Their greatness is beyond our understanding and we are not permitted to ever criticize them. And if sometimes we see something within them that it appears on the surface as if they are doing something wrong, we are required to interpret it in such a way that 
leads to the conclusion that what they did was proper and correct. And that is the approach that is expressed by Rabbi Hirsch. He explains that what Avram did was correct. And there are many scholars, classic Jewish scholars, that support that view. Or, are we to look at these great people as people? Great people, but still people. Capable of making mistakes. And sometimes, according to this second approach, the lesson that we learn from them is what not to do. And there are many scholars that support this view, like the Ramban and the Radak, in criticizing Avraham in our passage. And both of these approaches, explains Rabbi J.J. Schachter, are problematic. Because to say that these individuals were perfect and we cannot find fault with them, well, if that's the case, how can we learn from their virtue if we, don't have, if we don't have the perfection that they had? How am I supposed to learn from someone if there's no connection between us? Of course you're going to choose the right path because you're perfect, because everything you choose is right. But I'm just not that way. So how can I use you as a role model if you're perfect? And how in the world can I appreciate their greatness without knowing that they struggled and sometimes they fell short? Because if they didn't struggle and fall short, then what makes them so great? They were just on a different level, disconnected from me. Plus, what do we do with all all the statements in rabbinic literature, and there are many thousands and thousands and thousands that do find fault with these heroes in the Torah. For example, the Talmud says that we were slaves in Egypt because of Avraham's shortcomings. And so many other statements that find fault with Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov and Moshe and Sarah and Rachel and Leah and David Amalekh and everybody, every single hero within all of Tanakh is at some point criticized by our rabbis. On the other hand, to say that we can criticize them is also problematic. Where do we draw the line? Are we to look at them precisely like you and me? But after all, we say in our prayers, in the Shemon Esri and the Amidah, we say, Eloke Avraham, Eloke Yitzchak, Eloke Yaakov. Each one of them had some kind of special, unique relationship with God. Can any of us say that about ourselves? Clearly, they were greater than us spiritually and morally. 
Clearly, they were living on an entirely different dimension from you and me. So what criticism is okay? And what crosses the line? And to add just one more layer to the problem, presumably, how we describe them relates to the context of where we are describing them. When I speak with you now, I want to teach Torah. But I also want to inspire all of us to love Torah, to love Judaism, to be proud of Judaism and the Torah. How can I do that while I am criticizing much of what these people do? So, as I said at the beginning of this section, I don't have the answer. Clearly, the Torah has infinite complexity with multiple conflicting interpretations of every passage of every word. Clearly, both of these approaches have value. I presume we should try to modulate between these two sides. When we excuse and rationalize behavior, we should try at the same time to emphasize that we are to emulate these great people, that there are lessons to be learned from them that we can apply to our lives. And when we do criticize them, we should do so with caution. And we should do so with the humility that we are in the presence of giants. Hopefully, like many difficult dilemmas in life, at least being aware of the problem is the largest first step we can take to dealing with it. <clears throat> okay. So Avraham has a nephew. His name is Lot. In our Parsha, we learn that Avraham and Sarah take Lot with them on their life's journey to travel to Israel, to establish the Jewish people. Why do they take Lot with them? Well, it's not clearly stated anywhere in the Torah. They must have felt very close to him. Perhaps it was because at the time that Avram and Sarah left their home, they were already at an advanced age and they did not have children, as I referred to before. Maybe they thought that somehow Lot, their nephew, would be their future. Or maybe 
since Lot's father had died as a young man, we discussed that last time, maybe they had taken Lot under their wing, into their home. Maybe they took care of him and he was part of their family. But whatever hopes Avram and Sarah had for Lot, they appear not to have worked out. Because after settling in Israel, they soon find that they are arguing and that they can no longer live together. If you turn, please, to page 58 in the Stone Chumash, I'm in chapter Yud Gimel, chapter 13, Pasuk number Hey, number 5, in the Stone Chumash on page 58, it's in the middle of the page. The Torah says, V'gam lelot ha'olechas Avram ha'yatzon uvakar va'olim. Lot also became wealthy with possessions, with sheep and cattle and tents, just as Avraham prospered in Canaan. But then the Torah says, Vlonasa osam ha'aretz la'sheves yaktav. The land was not enough for them to live together. Because their possessions were many. They were not able to live together. The Torah explains, There was a dispute, an argument, a machlokas, between the shepherds of Avram and the shepherds of Lot. Rashi explains the dispute was because the shepherds of Lot were doing something wrong. The shepherds of Lot were taking his flocks to graze on land that did not belong to him. That's stealing. And the shepherds of Avram brought up with the morality and the uprightness of Avram could not abide the shepherds of Lot stealing from other people. So what could Avram do about it? What should Avraham do about it? Well, of course, when there is a dispute in a family, when family members are not able to get along, of course, the first effort is to try to repair the breach, to try to find shalom, peace, to try to repair the relationship, to find a solution, talk it out, maybe a compromise, you try to work it out. But in this passage, the Torah teaches us a very, very important and practical lesson. Because sometimes, after all the trying to repair a relationship within a family, Pasuk number 8, Vayomer Avram Elot, Avram said to his nephew Lot, Al nati mariva echa. Let there not be a dispute between you and me, between your shepherds and my shepherds. Halo kol ha'aretz lefanecha. There is plenty of land here. He pared na me'alai. 
let's separate. You go this way, I'll go this way. We'll put some distance between the two of us. And Lot saw in the distance the area of Sodom, which was very fertile at that time. Lot chose to move towards the area of Sodom. And the two divided. They split. They moved apart. <coughs> sometimes, not always, but sometimes, in order to keep peace, it is necessary to give space to the other person and to put space between you and the other person. Sometimes, that's the only choice. I heard this following insight first from Label Tripp, who, of blessed memory, who many of you remember was a, a wonderful, wonderful person, member of our shul, a dear friend. I heard this from him first. Later I heard it from other sources, but I heard it from him first. There's a line in our prayers that we say. It's the last line of the Amidah, the standing prayer, the Shemon Esrei. It's also the last line of the Kaddish prayer. And it goes like this, very famous line, Oseh Shalom Bim Ramav, Hu Yaseh Shalom Aleinu V'alkal Yisrael. Oseh Shalom Bim Ramav, God who makes peace in heavens, Hu Yaseh Shalom Aleinu, make peace here down below, V'alkal Yisrael, and peace among all of Israel. And we answer, Amen. Before saying those words, we have the practice that we take three steps back. Said label trip, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, in order to make peace, you have to take a few steps back. You have to give room to the other person. You have to put a little bit of distance between yourself and them. Rodney Dangerfield said it best. He said, we sleep in separate rooms. We have dinner apart. We take separate vacations. We're doing everything we can to keep our marriage together. But sometimes, that is the only way to make peace. <clears throat> I'd like to share with you one more piece. Lech Lecha, God's command to Avram to go, to go to Israel. Lech Lecha is the start of Jewish history. And those words, lech lecha, are astounding, dramatic, poignant, and revolutionary. And those words were addressed to Avram and Sarah, 
And those words are likewise addressed today, every day, to us, to you and to me. Permit me to share with you something I read this week that is so exquisitely beautiful as it weaves together the message of Lech Lecha to Avraham and to us. This was written by Yael Leibowitz and it appeared in Times of Israel. Yael made Aliyah. She moved to Israel in 2014. She is an extraordinary writer and teacher. And what I want to share with you now is a slightly condensed version of the original that she wrote. <coughs> Go from your native land, from your father's home to the land that I will show you. Go from your grandparents that you're terrified to leave because they are frail and their hands tremored when you told them. Go from your colleagues and your accomplishments. Go from your childhood friends that you can never make again because they know. So they laugh at your stories and only they will ever laugh that way at your stories. Go to the land that he went to, but know it will break your mother's heart and your children will miss the hugs that only she can give. Go to the land that will make everything sweeter and harder and deeper to the land that will embrace you in its foreignness and its familiarity, its stones, its spices, its love. Go to the land they wanted to get back to all those years and years but couldn't. Go and watch your children turn into the people you always dreamed they could become as they learn the language and the empathy and the resilience and the pride and the curses and the arguments and the rivers and the songs. Go, but know that when you watch him score baskets, your cheers will be tinged with fear because he is young and able and he loves the country like you taught him to. Go knowing they will see and hear things that will make them grow up too fast and grow cynical and believe. Go so they will never have to. Go with confidence because he went to the land he was promised. 
your future. My friends, I want to wish you a great Shabbos. I hope that the message of Lech Lecha sinks in for all of us and speaks to us today as it spoke to Avram and Sarah all of those years ago. Have a great Shabbos and I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.